The second Bible reading tonight comes from Romans chapter 3, and we're reading from verses 21 through to 31, on page 1180 on the Pew Bibles. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? Is it, it is excluded on what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by his faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Thanks, Sean. There is an outline for the talk if you need one. There's also a full transcript for those of you who would find that helpful. Uh, so feel free to grab one of those. Now, for the last few weeks, we've been working our way through Romans chapter 1 to 3. And if you've been feeling quite depressed over what we've been hearing about judgment and about uh, the wrath of God and about what we deserve, then tonight it changes. Uh, but it is an important passage. Uh, so let's ask God for his help once again. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll help us see how desperately that we need the gospel of grace that you offer to us in this passage and to us tonight. We pray, Lord, that we'll hear, heed it and respond appropriately. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, those of you who know me well, I've been at this church for about five and a half years now. Those of you who know me well know that I enjoy watching movies. Um, watching documentaries, it's how I escape from the world and get my mind off, the, off you guys for a while anyway. <laughs> well, yesterday I took uh, our kids to watch a movie. We watched Despicable Me, Despicable Movie anyway. I enjoyed uh, the, the 60 minutes or so I was awake and the rest of it I escaped from reality. But every once in a while, the things I watch, um, I, I come across things that are, that are insightful, that are unique that are quite profound the other week i watched not a movie not a documentary but a ted talk have you heard of ted talks they are these talk short talks online about things about life non-christian secular spreading ideas around the world and some of them are quite helpful now this talk i heard the other week was by a guy by the name of matthew o'reilly he worked as an uh, emergency medical technician specialist in new york equivalent to a paramedic here in Australia. He had years of experience in this type of job, and so he will be often the first responder to accidents and medical emergencies, such as the Hurricane Sandy a few years ago. Now, what this has meant was that in his experience, in his job, countless times he was the very last person the dying would see. It was his face that the dying would see, the last person. And over his years of experience, he, he observed a few patterns, 
from those who are facing imminent death. One of the patterns that he observed that shocked, shocked him was this, that there is this universal need of forgiveness just before death. Isn't that profound? And he said that's regardless of religious belief or cultural background. Whatever the dying caught it, some caught it sin, some just caught it regret. But, but their guilt was universal. And so in one situation he described, an elderly person had a massive heart attack and expressed that he, he just wished he would have spent more time with his children, with his grandchildren, that he would be less selfish with his time. He just expressed regret. That's his last few minutes. Uh, needing forgiveness, feeling regret. In fact, do you remember a few weeks ago when there was that tragedy in Manchester, that bombing? Uh, there was an article that 22-year-old suicide bomber made a final call to a woman and pleaded, forgive me, knowing what he would do, knowing that he would die. He pleaded for forgiveness. Isn't that strange? Quite profound. The last few minutes of the dying, they expressed regret and they expressed this need for forgiveness. It's a terrible thing, isn't it? Don't you think? Your last few minutes in this world, in life, but yet to carry that burden of guilt into death, to die with, with hatred, with shame, with unfinished business. Who wants to die that way? Well, that was a very interesting and profound talk I heard. But as I was listening to that, I was preparing for Romans. And it got me thinking, there's actually something worse than that. There's something that's actually worse than just dying with guilt and this sense of I need forgiveness from my friends or family and it's what we've been hearing in Romans over the last few weeks because worse than dying with a sense of guilt is to die and then to face God in judgment for that guilt I mean what's more frightening than that not expecting that God will be on the other side you already feel guilty you're pleading for forgiveness but on the other side you have to face God and there will be no excuse that will stand, no escape that is possible, and nothing that can be brought to save us from God's judgment. And so that's the plight of humanity, and it is hopeless. How can anyone die then with the opposite, with that sense of relief, that, that, that sense of, I've been forgiven already, that sense of hope when we do face God, it won't be wrath I see, but it will be love and embrace. How do you die that way? I don't want to die like the other way, with regret and, and needing forgiveness. I want to die with peace, with hope that all the business that needs to be done has been done. Well, that's exactly what we find out in this wonderful passage today. Remember, we've been painting the world pitch black, completely dark, hopeless and helpless, but today in our passage, that diamond drops. That diamond drops in the mess of this world. And what we see in this passage is so momentous that it has been described. These few verses has been described as the center of the whole Bible. Leon Morris, former principal of Ridley College here in Melbourne, he calls, calls these few verses possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. This is it. We're looking at it tonight. Calvin said what we learn here in this passage is the main hinge on which religion turns. Because see, you see, in this passage, what we see is that 
we, we find out how the guilty can be declared innocent. How is that possible? A guilty person declared innocent? How sinners can be forgiven? How does that become possible? And how the unjust can be proclaimed justified? That is what we find in our passage. And so how will all that become possible so that people can die with that genuine sense of help, of hope, that there is forgiveness? Well, the only way that it can become possible, if you have a look at this passage, is by grace. That is, it is all undeserved, unmerited, all of God's doing, completely God's own initiative, freely given by grace. And that's because if we've understood what we've heard over the last three chapters, if we understood that correctly, humanity is really as depraved and wicked and guilty and stands condemned. There is no hope from within humanity. It's, it's impossible for a dead person to bring that person back to life again, and so it's just as impossible for anyone to try to save himself before God, to say, look at what I've done. Isn't that enough? That is impossible. There is no resources from within humanity to save ourselves. The world is pitch black. And so if there is to be any salvation at all, if anyone is to make it on the other side and to enter heaven, then that must come from God himself. And that is why it is by grace. It must come from God. And that's what we see here. Have a look at your Bibles. Keep it open. The first few verses... In fact, the first few words, we read verse 21, but now, the most important but in all of human history, you cannot save yourself, we've been told, but now, you are not good enough, but now, you are deserving of judgment, but now, you will die hopeless, but now, you see, but now, in the thousands of years of human history, but now in salvation history, he comes now, a new state of affairs. He comes the dawning of divine redemption. He comes a new way of being righteous, to be in right standing before God, to be declared innocent before we die. And it comes not from us, you see. It doesn't come from us in trying to be good, in trying to obey the laws, in trying to be nice and kind and decent. It comes solely from God. God's initiative, God does it all. God makes it possible. So have a look, verse 21. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known in which the law and the prophets testify. Now this is a technical word, righteous and righteousness. What does that mean? It's a forensic term which means it comes from the law court. To justify, that's a verb, is to declare someone righteous or just, that's a noun. Now, in English, we've got these four words, justify, just, righteousness, righteous. They all come from the same root Greek word. And so we miss that in the English, but it's all the same word. And so here what we're seeing is that God has determined, God has worked out, God in his genius, in his wisdom, He's worked out a way in which he can declare guilty people innocent. I mean, that's profound. How do you change a verdict of that? If you're guilty, you're guilty. How do you change such a verdict? But it is here all by grace, and it is all free. Have a look at verse 24 now. 
all are justified freely by his grace. The initiative comes from God. It is all God. There is nothing that anyone can contribute to their own salvation. Our former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, he said this, All I contribute to my own salvation is the sin from which I need to be saved. I like that. We've got nothing at all we can contribute. We only give our sin, but that's what we need to be saved from. It is all by the grace of God. And so now, if righteousness, being declared innocent, righteous, becomes possible by grace, how then can I get it? How then does it become mine? How can I receive it, this free gift that God offers? You see, those of you who are like me, guilty before God, we want to be declared innocent. How do we get that? Well, here in this passage, it makes very clear. It is through faith, faith in Jesus. That is to humbly believe in him, trust in him, depending on God's solution in Jesus. Look at verse 22 and 23 now. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. See, it's through faith and it's to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so regardless of gender, culture, religion, race, age, everyone has access to being right with God. It's offered to everyone, this whole world, the billions of people in this world, is offered to everyone. But who are those who will get it? Well, the only ones who will get it are those who respond in faith, those who take God at his word. You see, that's what faith is, is taking God as his, at his word. Lord, I know I can't save myself. I, 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 know, I, I know what I've done, I've I know what I've thought. There's no way I can save myself. I've got nothing in me that can save me. And Lord, I know that I won't be saved because I'm good enough. I know what I've done. I'm not good enough. I'm not holy enough. And Lord, if you say then, knowing this, that I'm guilty, that I'm wicked and I'm evil, but Lord, if you say having faith in Jesus is enough, if you're offering me that gift just by believing in him, I will take you at your word. That is faith. That is depending on the promises of God. I'll take you at your word. And so now this world that we've been seeing painted black, pitch black, the diamond has dropped. How does it become yours? Well, through faith, depending on what God says, trusting his promises, taking him at his word. So it is by grace, through faith in Christ. And so now, if righteousness becomes possible by grace, it becomes mine through faith. How is it then that this contradiction of terms becomes possible? How is it that a guilty person might be declared innocent? How does God just change a verdict like that? That seems impossible. And how is it possible for God to, in a sense, overlook all of human sin and depravity? And rebellion, how does God overlook all of those things? I mean, we hear in the Bible, God is very consistent. He says in, in Proverbs 17, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. And then we also read in Exodus, I will not acquit the guilty. How then does God, in this passage, acquit guilty people like us? 
seems weird, it seems strange. How do you just change a verdict? How is it possible for God to do the very thing he said he will not do? That's what God has been saying in the Old Testament. You see, it would be a, a gross miscarriage of justice to not only let the guilty off, but to call the guilty innocent. That is a miscarriage of justice. And if any of that happens in our world, in our justice system, we'll, we'll put the judge to jail. So how does God just suddenly change a verdict? How is it possible? Well, where it becomes possible is the cross of Christ. That is where it becomes possible. At the cross, we see the great cosmic substitution. The great cosmic substitution. Jesus takes on our sins, bears our shames, absorbs God's punishment so that we can get his righteousness, so that we can escape God's judgment. Our sins upon him, his righteousness upon us, the great cosmic substitution. I did all the sinning, Jesus did all the saving. It is the great cosmic substitution of the Son of God in our place. It's a bit like this story that I used to read to our kids. When they were a little younger, we would read not the actual Bible itself, which we do now, but we'll read children's Bible and we'll read children's stories, Christian stories. And there was this one book, a wonderful book, Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing. And there was this one story in this book called The Missing Shovel. So there are five shovels there. There's apparently one missing. It's based on a story in the book Miracle on the River Kwai. In this story, it's World War II. Prisoners of war were building a railroad. And they were being working there all day, breaking their backs. But by the end of the day, the shovels were counted. And what they discovered was one was missing. The guards were enraged. They were angry. And so what they did, they lined up the, the, the prisoners, ordered them to stand there until someone admitted that they stole the shovel. No one said it was them. But then the guards got even more angry. If no one admits, we will kill you all. You know what happened then? Well, in this story, the, how it goes is one guy, he stepped forward and he said, I did it. And the guards at that point killed that person. But then later that night at the guardhouse, that, that missing shovel was found. It wasn't stolen in the first place. But that innocent man sacrificed his life to save the others. And so it's a little story demonstrating what Jesus did on a cosmic scale. Jesus, the innocent one, takes the place of us guilty ones. The innocent one stepped forward and sacrificed his life for us. How can God declare the guilty innocent? It is because Jesus bears all that guilt and punishment. He cops the punishment. We get his righteousness. But now what we see in this passage is, is quite deep. It's, it's to help us see the richness of what happened at the cross of Christ. Paul here now uses three images to describe this richness of what was achieved. It's like a diamond. There are different facets and, uh, and faces of the diamond, and, and that, that's what gives it its brilliance, its sparkling. And so in a sense, what Paul is doing is showing us the different aspect of the cross of Christ, what the cross of Jesus achieved, what his death achieved. 
And so what, what Paul now does is he, he tells us three things. He describes the sacrifice of Jesus in three different ways. Firstly, it was a ransom for our redemption. Secondly, it was the propitiation for our sins. And thirdly, it was the demonstration of God's justice. And so let's have a look at that. It's in our passage. It's on the outline. Firstly, the death of Jesus was for our redemption. Now, when we talk about redemption, what are we thinking of? We're perhaps thinking of redeeming my freaking fly points for some flight. We're perhaps thinking of redeeming a coupon because we don't want to pay full price at a restaurant. But the idea of redemption here comes from the ancient slave market. And so what happened in the ancient world was if a relative, say a brother, did something silly in his business dealings, he lost all his money, there's no bankruptcy laws to protect him and his family, and so what he would have to do is to sell himself and his family off as slaves. And so they would be slaves. That's how they pay off their debt. But then the next of kin, his brother, say, I'm the brother, I have that right to redeem him back, to pay a ransom price, to set him free from slavery, to pay that ransom price. And that's where the idea of ransom and redemption comes from. And so the cross of Christ, Paul, he describes, was the ransom price to set sinners free from slavery, to set sinners free from death and condemnation. And that's what we see, verse 24, have a look. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And so when we see the cross, when we consider the cross now, it's meant to remind us that life hanging there, the Son of God, was the price paid, was the ransom that was paid to set me free, to set me free from slavery of death and sin. That's the first image Paul uses. Secondly, he gives us another one, another angle of the diamond. Paul, he describes the death of Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. It's a big word, but more technically, a bigger word, it's the word propitiation. Now, let me explain that. The idea of propitiation came from the pagan world of temple worship. And so what would happen in the ancient world, in their worship of their gods, was that different gods had different domains of responsibility and power and influence. And so, for example, if you wanted a particular god to be nice to you and not be angry at you, you, you would have to offer sacrifice to that God. And so if you're going on a journey, you want to say voyage, then you offer sacrifices to that type of God. If you want to have a baby, start a family, offer sacrifices to the fertility God so that that God is appeased, so that that God is pacified, so that that God would not be angry at you. That's what propitiation means. That's where it comes from. But here it's used in that way but slightly different. Though the term comes from pagan worship, it's quite different when we think about what happened with Jesus. Because what exactly did happen? You see, was Jesus an unwilling sacrifice that we brought and offered to God? Where did this sacrifice come from? Well, no. You see, in the pagan world, in pagan worship, it was the people who offered their animals or fruits to turn away their God's anger, to make their God propitious. But what we see here is that it is God himself who offers his own son as a propitiation for our sins. It's our sins that God is rightly angry about, we can't do anything about. We can't even think about offering sacrifices because the animals, the fruit, whatever we have, they all belong to God in the first place. 
But here God offers the sacrifice. It is not us. God offers his own son. It is not us who brings that to him. It is God who offers that to himself. He was offered by God to absorb in our place the anger of God. That's propitiation. So verse 25, have a look. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. The, the word is propitiation there, through faith in his blood. Now, you see, this doctrine is extremely important. Jesus did bear and bore on himself, on the cross, the full anger of God that we deserve. But there are Christians, or some churches even, that find this, in fact, quite hard to accept, that God would pour out his anger on his own son. Some even describe this as a god uh, this god as a cosmic abuser and so there are if you are not aware of this it's quite interesting when i read of it there are some churches and some denominations who would change lyrics in their hymns in their songs to reflect that because they don't like the idea of an angry god now do you know of the song in christ alone we, we have sung it before uh, many of you will know that now there's a line in the second verse that some churches and denominations have changed the line is, as it is originally, till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's propitiation. That's what we believe. That's what this passage says. But some not liking this idea, they've changed to do this. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Though that is also true, but it's denying what Jesus achieved on the cross. But of course, what we see here, is that if Jesus did not bear for us the wrath of God, where will it go? It has to go somewhere. And what this passage says, it, go, it went on him. Uh, an American pastor from last century, he puts it this way. The cross is the lightning rod of grace that short circuits God's wrath to Christ so that, the only, so that only the light of his love remains for believers. It's a nice way of understanding propitiation, isn't it? The wrath went on Jesus so that God's love comes on to us. And so now when we consider the cross, there, the life hanging there, the Son of God is the life that turned away the Father's wrath from us upon him. The cross of Christ is the propitiation for our sins. It's actually very rich, you see. But now we learn of another one. Another angle of the diamond. The cross of Christ is also the only way that God can remain just and to be able to justify the guilty. It's the only way that it can happen. It's the only way. The cross was the great demonstration of both the love of God and also the justice of God they meet at the cross. See, it was the love of God that sent his son, but it is the justice of God that demanded the life of his son in our place i mean just imagine that it wasn't jesus who was offered as a sacrifice imagine if instead god said to us well you see for your life of greed your life of adultery your life of idolatry your life of selfishness your life of rebellion your life of even murder just change your clothes and we'll call it even what would that tell us well, it will show us that sin's not really that serious, just change your clothes. But it also show us that God will be unjust. You see, judgment must be carried out completely and comprehensively 
for God to remain just. And that judgment was carried out on Jesus. And so that's how Paul finishes off here, verse 25, the second part in 26. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. That is to say, the sins of all those Old Testament greats, Abraham, Moses, David, all their sins were sort of kept until the coming of Jesus and smack bang, their sins were punished in Jesus. And so we can say the Old Testament people, they were saved also through the cross of Christ, just like us. And now verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And so what do we learn from this? This is really the good news. Salvation is only possible by grace through faith in Christ. He paid the ransom for our redemption. He was the propitiation for our sins and his death demonstrated the justice of God. And so now, what are we to make of this passage? We see Calvin calls it the hinge on which religion turns. Perhaps the most important paragraph ever written. Well, if we understood this passage properly, we're actually given an insight into the mind of God. We're actually given an insight into the heart of God. We, in fact, see the genius of God. How did he change a verdict? It was at the cross of Christ. How did he do such a thing, God? It was out of love, at great cost to himself. And so what we see by way of implication, what we learn in this passage is, firstly, that what was impossible has now become possible. You see, there is no one in this world who is good enough to save themselves. There is no one in this world who is innocent enough to escape God's judgment. No one. It is pitch black. It is dark. It is hopeless. But God, in this passage, has made the impossible possible. Jesus said what was impossible for man, God makes possible, and that's what we see here. But what we have to come to understand, even though it is possible now, this was not easy for God. We have to feel the weight of what it cost God. We have to feel what it did to God's heart for the impossible to become possible. You see, it's true. In the Bible we read, like in Jeremiah, we read, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? And so there really isn't too many things in God's perspective that is too hard for him. Uh, in creation, it was a piece of cake. God spoke, creation came. Very easy. In sustaining the world today, it's really no sweat. He gives us life. He does that. Easy. No sweat at all. But if there's anything that comes close to being hard and difficult for God, it is to make this impossibility a possibility. Because, you see, for God to justify the guilty, God had to get his hands dirty with the blood of his son. We have to feel that. To make the impossible a possible, God had to get his hands dirty with the blood of his son. That was what it cost God for anyone to be saved. It's the only time, if you think about this, the only time and will be the only time in all of human history where God would punish the innocent. No other innocent person will be punished. It's the only time where God will punish the innocent. 
Jesus was punished for my sins, for your sins, so that we, the guilty, might get justified. In the cross, we see the impossible becomes possible, but at great cost to God. But we, what, what we also see in this passage is that the unnecessary becomes necessary. Now, have you thought about this? If we feel the weight of what this did to the heart of God, you know, you think, why was it necessary for God to do what he did? Was it necessary for God to offer his son for the guilty? I mean, if I think about it, I wouldn't offer my children for anyone, let alone the guilty, the enemy. I wouldn't do such a thing. You see, it was unnecessary for God to save anyone in the first place. God didn't have to do it. No, we like to think that God owes us, but no. God could have just left us all to die with guilt and without any forgiveness. No one deserves to be forgiven by God. God could have just left us all in that dark, pitch black world without any solution. No one deserves any hope from God. God could have just given us what our just judgment deserves. No one deserves to escape that judgment. But though it was unnecessary for God to do such a thing, God, out of his profound grace, his unimaginable love, he did what was necessary for us to be saved. And so now, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, this message, this gospel, necessarily becomes the only way to be saved. It's the only way to come to God. It's the only way where your verdict of guilty can be changed to innocent. And so if any one of us ever thinks or believes otherwise, that's of great offense to God. You see, if any one of us thinks, I can get to heaven on my own terms. If any one of us thinks there are all these other religions, they all go up the same mountain, if any one of us thinks there are multiple ways to heaven, that is to spit in the face of God and say, you've wasted the blood of your son. I found another way. I mean, would God have done it if there was another way? You see, it was unnecessary for God to provide a solution. But now that he has, it necessarily becomes the only solution, the only message, the only gospel for the plight of humanity. And now finally, what we also see, what changes with this, is that the hopeless life now becomes completely hopeful, a complete turnaround. You know that, that specialist, that uh, EMT specialist I spoke about at the beginning? He, he said that most people die with that sense of needing forgiveness. And that is sad, that sense of regret. I mean, if that is the case, and we know that, of course, you want to make amends you want to make right, get it right now with family, friends, reconcile, whatever. But what this passage is also telling us, get it right with God. Don't die unforgiven by God. Get it right with God before it's too late. And how? It is simple. By grace, through faith in Christ. And just like what we heard in the testimony, Samuel, it's the best decision anyone can make because suddenly your life, a hopeless life, is now hopeful, genuine hope, not wishful thinking, not false optimism, but genuine hope where we can all wake up every day knowing I am justified today. 
I'm justified by faith, not by what I do, not by what I will do. I'm justified, I'm acceptable to God by faith. Now, I've been reflecting on our time here. We've been here for a few years, but also our life, Yvonne and myself. And just the other week, we were thinking, we feel a bit old now. And we we thought, we've we've just been through so much already, done so much, but yes, so much more to do. But we thought about it, we're only 37 years old might feel old to some of you uh, and we do feel old in our growth group in particular but here when we've got people like Chris we feel a bit younger but that's okay <laughs> but we thought about it we are 37 years old if God grants us the average life expectancy in Australia that is 82 years old we actually did the calculation we, we haven't even lived half our life now there will be days we know we've already experienced days where it's just hard It's just difficult, it's just stressful, it's just wearisome. And there will be many, many more days and years of that. How do you live knowing that we haven't even lived half our life if God grants us that many years? How do you live in light of this? Well, whether the days will be good or bad, we'll all have them. Whether the days of joy will be small or big, we'll, we'll all have those too. Whether the suffering is temporary or lasting, We'll have those. Whether the disappointments will be tiny or heartbreaking, we'll have those. Whether our failures will be small or big and moral, we'll have those. How does this passage help with that? Well, there is great hope now. The impossible has become possible. The guilty, like me, a guilty man, can be justified through faith in Christ. And guilty people like you can live now being justified through faith in Christ. Nothing can change that. Nothing can change that. Nothing is going to take away our right standing before God because of the sacrificial death of Jesus. And so if you understand that, we were a bit weary. Mate, we're not even halfway there and we feel tired already. How liberating is that? How wonderful is that? And so unlike those who do die and it is sad who die with that sense of regret that need for forgiveness what can we say from this passage if that is you if you do believe this what can we say well we can say when my end comes when my years are up when the darkness closes in when my eyes shut for the last time there won't be any guilt there won't be any need for forgiveness because By the grace of God, through faith in Christ, I am justified. That's how I meet the Lord. I am justified already. How glorious that way of living. In fact, how glorious that way of dying. And so if we understand this, the diamond has dropped. It is spectacular. It is brilliant. If we understand this, we can never stop marveling at what God did for us at great cost to him in giving his son for us. And so we say those words, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Saviour's blood? It's his blood. He died for me who caused his pain. I caused his pain for me who him to death pursued. He went to the cross for me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amen. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that even as you see the darkness and the hopeless mess that this world is in, you did not leave us without a solution and without an answer. But in your kindness, you offer us your son, who was the ransom price for our redemption, the propitiation of our sins, and the one who demonstrates your wonderful justice. So we pray, Lord, that if we have not yet, we will respond accordingly by grace through faith in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.